We are continuing our series in John's Gospel. For those of you who just walked into this building, don't know what we're doing, how we got here. It started in 19... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to just stop while I'm behind. <laughs> but here we are. And uh, I met, I, Scott, in Scott's prayer, he mentioned that Grace... Uh, McDonald is, is, she's overseas, she's in Kenya going, she's actually going to be flying down to South Africa. You know the parable of the, um, you know, going and finding the, the one wandering sheep of the 99. Uh, I'm going to go down as a good pastor and meet Grace. The hour she gets into the Cape Town International Airport, I'll be there with my family to meet Grace and she's going to come spend a few days with us. Uh, as we uh, will be away from the Monday the 12th to the 26th of December in South Africa. I'm doing an ordination uh, ceremony for a church down there and some other work. So I thought I'd go and take care of Grace. And um, my, my wife's first question when we're staying is, uh, are we staying in a secure estate? I says, no, but it's, it's got an ocean view. She's like, I want a secure estate. So uh, pray for me. Um, <laughs> i got to somehow build a wall <laughs> around the house in the next few weeks. And um, so we'll be away. And then in January, I'll be in the Philippines for a week. Uh, there's a conference I was supposed to have been at the last three years, but because of COVID, I'm finally arriving, uh, Lord willing, in the Philippines. And uh, any of our Filipino friends here who wish to give me any information on what to eat and not eat and all the other places I should go or not go, please talk to me after the service. But I look forward to that because they're very, um, seems like they're quite excited for this conference finally happening. So that's the the plan. And uh, we are going to be reading now from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 46, and through to chapter 5, verse 17. Two uh, stories of healings. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word and that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let us ask God to bless his word, read and preached. Father, please now open up your word to our hearts. We have read these words with our eyes and heard them with our ears, but unless the Holy Spirit applies them to our hearts, they will be a dead letter. So please may they be letters of life, not death, letters of hope and of letters that lead us to see Christ in all of his glory, which is so clearly before us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you think of all of the emotions that you read of in the life of Christ, uh, which do you think is the emotion that most frequently appears on the Scriptures? Now, this is what tends to happen in my experience in ostensibly Reformed circles. If you, uh, I don't like to beat up on the Reformed, being one myself, um, but this is how it usually goes. Uh, your Bible study or your, you know, you're in theology class 101 and you whip out your concordance and uh, someone has made a comment at a Bible study about the love of God, you know, and everyone's like, ah, yes, the love of God. But there's that guy or that girl, usually that guy, and he uh, says, well, you know, we must remember that for every one reference to the love of God, there are three references to the wrath of God. And we sit there and everyone goes quiet and maybe we have a bathroom break or we just uh, move along with that uncomfortable silence because someone has done a uh, word study on how many times God's wrath is mentioned compared to his love. Uh, I don't think theology should be done that way, um, where you pile up words and quotes and go to work that way. But when you read the ministry of Christ, you do see certain passions, certain affections that arise from Christ that appear to be a dominant focus in his ministry. And Benjamin Warfield, in one of the great essays on Christ ever written in the English language, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, free online, says the following, The emotion that we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy, is no doubt compassion. 
That is the emotion that is most frequently attributed to him. You remember those phrases over and over again, and Jesus moved with compassion, whether singular to an individual or whether crowds who were hungry or whatever the case may be. Jesus was constantly, habitually, fervently moved with compassion. Warfield says this is the emotion that is most frequently attributed to him. The divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God, whereby, and this is what makes up divine mercy, He pities and relieves sinners in their miseries. He pities and relieves. That is to say, there's two parts. There's an internal movement of compassion, and then there's an external act of beneficence or goodness towards the person. Now, what you have in people like you and I is often only one of those parts. Let me explain. Sometimes people, they're not really moved inwardly by compassion, but they do something for someone for reasons that uh, may be just to be seen by others or just to uh, clear their conscience, so they do something towards someone that is an act of mercy. There are others where we lack the power and the resources and we are inwardly moved with compassion to someone's suffering condition, but we don't have the resources to be able to help them in that. I wish I could go around healing people who, to me, appear to be in a very uh, dreadful state. I don't have the ability to do that, though I may have compassion. Jesus, unlike anyone else in all of world history, when he has an inward movement of compassion and desires to relieve people of their misery as an act of mercy, is also able to affect what goes on in his heart towards that person. His is the true mercy. His is the mercy that ultimately heals. And His is the mercy that we are confronted with here. There's two different stories. The first is what is called the second sign in verse 46 of chapter 4. Jesus has gone to Cana. You remember in Cana, the author John tells us where he had made water into wine. So clearly, when somebody does that at a public wedding, when they performed a miracle, people don't forget about that in the short period of time that this has happened. They remember what he had done. So he comes back, and what do we find? Well, at Capernaum, which is not in Cana, there was an official. This official, most scholars take to be a Jewish official, not a Roman one. It is usually... uh, remarked when there's a Roman official, like the Roman centurion and other things like that in the gospel accounts, there's an official whose son was ill. And this sets the stage for uh, a movement of compassion because it is one of the most difficult things for a parent to endure when their child is extremely ill. Now, by that I mean extremely ill. Uh, My kids have been wiped out with a sickness the last few weeks, and some of the kids I coach for soccer absolutely wiped out. And I mean, uh, this is worse. I mean, I won't. I, I don't know how this happened, but my my boys happened to have played some very good soccer games, and they had COVID, and then we only found out a few days later that they had COVID. But now this illness has wiped them out, and it's not been terribly sad for me because. Uh, Josh, in all of the strength and might of his youth, has been uh, laid low on the couch. And uh, on Saturday night and Friday night, we had a quiet evening together because he couldn't really move. 
and we watched sappy Christmas movies off Netflix together with the same plot line for both movies. With Lindsay Lohan in one of the movies, you're not expecting much. I wasn't expecting miracles, but when you start to know how the movie's going to end within the first five minutes, you know, it's whatever. But it was nice. I thought, here's my sick son. He can't run off with his buddies. He can't leave. He can't go play video games. He's stuck sitting beside me, Dad. And we watch these horrible Christmas movies together. That's not really the emotion I think is going on with this father. Because back in the ancient world, and even up to the early modern world, where you take someone like John Owen, who has nine children that either die in infancy or before birth or shortly thereafter, you're dealing with the fact that when children got sick, very often they died. Only one of John Owen's children, his daughter, lived... uh, uh, up to, she lived to, I think, 19 and got excommunicated from a church and then apostatized from the faith. Terrible, terrible life, some of these uh, uh, theologians, these heroes that we've read about with their children. And if you go back to the ancient world, the first century, when a child was ill and had a fever, they often died. And you see that, that he was at the point of death in verse 47. Now, This is where our Lord fails Pastoral Theology 101 class at seminary. Why do I say that? Because he doesn't answer in a way that you might expect him. There's a sort of basic public rebuke here. Verse 48, Unless you see signs, you plural, you Israel, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth is there is a father with a sick child and there's a rebuke to the people, including this father in a sense. Unless you see these signs, you will not believe. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't going to be moved with compassion, isn't going to, but he is highlighting some, shall we say, cold truths about people and their nature. And what you find in the Gospels is that people, as the Gospel accounts go on, are very willing to receive from Christ what He is able to offer by way of miracles and less willing to receive from Christ what He's able to offer by way of eternal life and forgiveness. They actually want the gifts, but not the giver. They want the blessings, but they don't want the author of the blessings on His terms. Now, He says that to set the stage, and does so. And I rather like the official's response, because in a sense, he is so consumed with what is going on, he doesn't say, as I would say if I was able to calmly collect myself, this is what I would say after verse 48, You are right. It is true indeed that we often make mistakes and we want to see miracles and signs, but could you please still come and heal my son? He doesn't even acknowledge the problem. He just says, Sir, come down with me before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Now, instead of actions, what did he want? This official wanted Jesus to come with him. What you find in John's Gospel is that when people petition Jesus to do something, he usually does not do the thing requested on their terms. He will 
bless people. He will perform a miracle. He will do things, but it won't necessarily be on their terms. He did it to his mother at Cana. He is doing it here. He says, no, basically, I will not come with you. Go, your son will live. Now, what's most amazing, this official doesn't get a great rap among commentators. They look at him as one with little faith as opposed to others, the man born blind or the guy in the next uh, scene. But I think there's actually uh, quite a bit of faith here. It's weak faith, some say. I think it may even be a bit better than weak faith because look at his response. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, It's not so much that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, but what do I know about human nature? The following. Maybe this describes you. When you get something in your head about how something ought to take place, we are quite inflexible at times when we are told to do something a different way. He has so convinced himself that Jesus who turned water into wine has to come with him to go and heal his son by who knows doing what, that to actually be told, no, I'm not going to go with you after this man has convinced himself that Jesus needs to go with him, is quite remarkable that he actually does just walk away and believes the word that Jesus says. When you understand what we're like when we've made up our mind about something, this does display faith because he is prepared to live by the words of Christ. He has moved out of the realm of sight in a sense of where he wants to see Jesus. He wants him to touch him. He wants him to do something and simply takes his word. Now what ends up happening? Well, he's going down in verse 51. His servants meet met him and told him that his son was recovering. And I love to think about the emotions of certain walks that you read of in Scripture. When Abraham's walking with Isaac to Mount Moriah, what sort of emotions are going through Abraham as he thought his son was about to die? Here is another man who thinks his son is going to die, but he believes the word that Jesus says, and all of a sudden he's confronted with the reality that his son is actually getting better. Now, could this just be a mere happenstance whereby the child recovers, as people sometimes do recover? Well, John wants us to be absolutely sure that this was not just a fortunate recovery. In fact, in verse 52, this man understands what's at stake because he asks them, when is it that he got better? Well, they say uh, the seventh hour his fever left him, knowing that Jesus had spoken at the seventh hour, go, your son will live. And what is the response? He himself believed, and all his household. You know, you, you, you sometimes think you have to get to Acts for all the household uh, beliefs. Right here, they all believe. This is just how Jewish people function based on thousands of years of how God deals with them. Abraham believes, circumcised. Good news, boys. <laughs> Who's got scissors? And away they go. They are all circumcised. They are all believers. Once the head of the household believes, and once the head of the household has reason to believe and speaks to them, they all believe. And what the nature of this belief is, I don't precisely know, but they all believe. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus performs this second sign. They are signs 
not just miracles. And it's important to understand as we go forward that when Jesus is performing these signs, these miracles, they are lessons about who He is, but also about who humanity is. They're trying to reveal something. It's not so much a case in the Scriptures that when you see miracles, it's simply God exerting power over the natural world. That's not really why miracles take place. It's not, wow, look how great and strong God is. But there's always truth being conveyed in the miracle, in the sign about who God is, or in the case, who Jesus is, but also who we are. So when you get to the next miracle in chapter 5, Jesus encounters another individual. They go up to Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand that when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, from this point on, it's not going to be because they love him, but usually in terms of opposition is in Jerusalem. So, John chapter 5 to about John chapter 16 is basically Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders who are going to be against him. And they are against him in uh, quite significant and drastic ways. Now, they go to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. There's a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So clearly a place of historical import. It still exists today, we're told, by the Church of St. Anne. And they believe they found the spring where it would have been able to uh, allow this pool to, to flourish and uh, People go there, and uh, scholars go there, and Christians go there, and pilgrims go there, and, and hucksters go there, and, and people go there. And what you will find is that in the ancient world, this pool had great significance. You see this in verse 3. In these, and that is the spring, the pool, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. They would all go to this pool. Now the question is, Why? Why was this a meeting place for those who were very, very ill? And the answer is in verse 4. You see that? Well, you don't, unless you have a King James Version, or you have maybe an NIV Version, and then maybe if you look at the footnotes in the ESV Version. Now, later manuscripts have this verse, and whether or not the verse should be there or not, it's not really that important. I think what's important is that there clearly was a historical understanding and perhaps even myth that something would happen at this pool. So even if it is in the text, John isn't necessarily saying that this definitely was to happen, but what this is believed would happen. And what is that? Well, in the NIV, we read, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. This spring, which um, was giving rise to the pool, sometimes would start to move and you would see the waters begin to move. Now, the first one into the pool after such a disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, if you read on in this section, it does seem to make sense of how this person is thinking. Why do I say that? Well, think about this pool. And when you think about this pool, I want you to understand that this pool is really a microcosm of humanity. You have people who are very ill, who are sick, who are unable to heal themselves. It would have been quite a picture in looking at this pool 2,000 years ago, what it would have been like. But it's really just 
the world shrunk down. It's really just the sick and diseased soul that infects each and every one of us where we are utterly helpless. And so Jesus is at this pool and He is dealing with the human predicament. And what is the problem? Well, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now that is a long time to suffer. 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. How long he'd been at this pool, we don't know. But Jesus knew that he'd been there a long time. And then Jesus fails again pastoral theology class 101. Because he asks what is a stupid question. Think about it. Someone can't move. Do you want to move? Someone's in a wheelchair. Do you want to get out of the wheelchair? If you think about it on those terms, this is a stupid question. However, if you think about it in terms of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that His ways are far beyond our ways and higher than our ways and wiser than our ways, this is the most profound question you can ask people in this world who are suffering for various reasons. Do you really want to get well? Now, I'm going to come back to this verse, I can assure you. But do you want to be healed? As I said, it's either a stupid question or it's the most profound question he could ask this person. Now, the sick man answered him. And this helps you to understand verse 4, which is missing in a sense. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stood up. Do you want to get well? And he's saying, basically, yes, I want to get well. But the only way I'm going to get well is if I get put in that pool when the water starts to stir and I can be the first one in because that's the person who's going to get healed. And people are waiting for maybe years for this to take place, for this healing to happen. And then he says, here's my problem. While I'm going, perhaps crawling, we don't know, I assume he was crawling, another steps down before me. I always lose out on my miracle that I'm seeking. Well, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. The point of these two miracles is that Christ's words create reality. They create a reality. When you go to John chapter 1 and read the first 18 verses, those 18 verses are fleshed out, pardon the pun, but they're fleshed out in the rest of John's Gospel so that everything in the first 18 verses is sort of amplified in the rest of the Gospel. So, for example, in verses 2 and 3, He was in the beginning with God, speaking of Christ. All things were made through Him, this world. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And how did God create the world? How did He create the beauty of this creation? He simply spoke it into being. So Jesus is doing what? He is speaking into reality healings of people who are either deathly ill or unable to walk. His words create. He simply speaks when He sees people in their distress. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. The thing about the miracles in the Gospel accounts is not only are they signs conveying theological truth, but they are indisputable. 
Notice this man has not been an invalid for 38 minutes. Because then maybe he just had a nerve problem or who knows what else. There's no doubt for 38 years, it can be testified by multitudes of people he could not walk. And then Jesus simply speaks to him in public and guess what? He can walk. There's no doubt about it. Now, what ends up happening? Well, a revival breaks out in Jerusalem because the Son of God has come. The Messiah has come to bring healing to the people of God. And we can all rejoice that God has put His seal upon this servant. Let's see. The day was the Sabbath. Ah, when he goes up to Jerusalem, there's a clue. It's not going to be good. Then when you read it's the Sabbath, it usually isn't going to be good. And if you want to see spiritual psychopathic behavior, keep reading. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, What do you think any normal person would say to someone who has for 38 years been an invalid and now can walk? Well, Jesus says something to him, by the way, and so do the Jews, and it's not what we would think from either. They say, it is the Sabbath, and it's not not lawful for you to take up your bed. I'm sorry, I'm actually stunned at how crazy people are. (laughs) you've been an invalid for 38 years and it's not lawful for you to get up and walk right now. If it was tomorrow, that would be okay. And you see what idolatry does to people? It makes them crazy. Some of you don't know how crazy you are at times. You think you're normal. You think you have rational theological explanations. You live and you're, you're breathing and thinking and you're saying stuff and I'm going, you're crazy. You are crazy. And I say that to myself, by the way. Mark, why are you acting like this when you get all of a sudden a moment of clarity? These people are idolaters. They cannot see, hear, they cannot think. That is the judgment of idolatry. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, Isaiah 6, you read the Old Testament. When you get caught up in idolatry, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. And those who worship them, idols become like them. But he answered them, Hey, the man who healed me and said to me, Take up your bed, and walk. It's him who did this. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Why? This is interesting. Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus withdraws, but what we find out in verse 14 is something most remarkable. Jesus withdraws because there's a crowd in the place after he has just healed someone, but then Jesus goes and finds this man who is now able to walk. And verse 14, you have to just read it a few times to go, is this really happening? Of everything I've come to believe about God and the Bible and the gospel and pastoral counseling and everything else, is this really happening? Verse 14, because Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, see, you are well. And I think we should just end right there today.
it's already 12 o'clock actually. Because then I wouldn't have to deal with what he says after that. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Again, how many of us really have thought about what that means? Jesus has just healed someone who for 38 years has been in a miserable condition, says to him, see you are well, and then actually has the effrontery to say to someone who has suffered so much, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you? Now I have to tell you, this reveals something terribly profound about the human condition. There's not a single person in here over the age of 20, I believe, who doesn't have some sort of story about how life has been incredibly difficult for them at maybe many times in their life, for long periods of time in their life, or whatever you want to say about your life. And I'm here to tell you something quite solemn. It is entirely possible in our suffering to sin. This man may have been by a pool and he may have been so caught up in idolatry overthinking that an angel was going to come and relieve him of his real problems that he started to sin and got so consumed with his condition physically that he lost any ability to understand spiritual things. And so that makes the question in verse 6 profound and not stupid. Do you really want to get well? Do you really want to get well? Because some people in their physical misery use that as an excuse for all manner of other types of sins. So, if they can just excuse their sin by their physical misery, they actually don't want to get well. That's the truth. That's why Jesus asks the question, do you want to be well? And then finds him and says, see, you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse than being an invalid is judgment upon you for your sin. John Newton has these letters. And someone sent me Um, how Newton talks about different types of Christian characters, but then in all of these different types of Christian characters, there's usually a fatal flaw in such a person. It's quite a mesmerizing piece of pastoral theology. But then, as I was reading this, and I saw myself in one of those characters, I thought, oh no, that's not good, but that's me. I kept on reading, and in letter 36, he writes a letter to a friend who had been very ill, but then had come through the illness. And the way in which he writes the letter is, is not very nice. By the way, we would understand a a letter to someone who's just recovered because typically someone um, has recovered from an illness and we just go, isn't that wonderful? I'm so happy for you. Isn't this great? You've recovered from an illness. Um, And we'll say, praise God. But Newton doesn't do that, actually. Newton actually wants to know whether this person has made any spiritual progress as a result of their illness or whether they are simply the same person except now they're healthy. Have you used your suffering well or not? He says, if you answer me, yes, all things are just the same as formerly. The difference between sickness and health only accepted. I am at a loss how to reply to you. I can only sigh and wonder. 
And there's a quote here, but it's letter 36, Google, go read it yourself, because I'm out of time. But uh, Thursday night, we, we had our Bible study. Now, there are people who were there. You're here. You can confirm this. And I said, you know, a lot of times we, we pray for people who are sick to be made well, for them to be well. But I think we're missing something terribly important. Should we not be praying that in their sickness, they are drawing closer to the Lord, learning more about themselves and making spiritual progress in their sickness? Do we want people to be sick? No. Do we praise God when He shows mercy and brings people out of sickness? Yes. But are we not falling short time and time again because we are not focusing upon how, as the Puritans would say, a sickness will often do you more good than a sermon. And what you find for each and every one of us is the following. Thomas Brooks quotes Augustine. Deliver me, O Lord, from that evil man, myself. That's your biggest problem right now in the world. It's yourself. It's not me. It's not your friends. It's not the devil. It's not the world. It's you. Deliver me from that evil man, Lord, myself. And what is the Christian life? The Christian life is recognizing, as Thomas Adams said, that we are by nature false prophets to ourselves. You are all by nature a false prophet. You will lie to yourself. You will deceive yourself. You will trick yourself because you will speak your words to yourself. And Christ has to come in as He does in the first instance and in the second instance and He has to speak to you. And you have to believe Christ's words and you have to remember that God is good. That God is in control. That God knows what is best. That He is wise and you are not. And your life is a life whereby you are constantly battling between the false prophet of your wicked heart and the true words of the living God. And who will you believe? Deliver me, O Lord, from that evil man myself. And you need to believe the words of Christ. Because He has come that we may have life abundantly. He has come that we may be free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But what is that? But simply believing the words of God and living as though they were true. Most of my pastoral theology and counseling is not telling you anything terribly profound, but reminding you of who you are and who God is and that you need to believe His words and not your own lies. But the question is, as we conclude, do you really want to get well? Do you really want to live by God's words as Christ did in the wilderness? Do you really want to trust His words or do you want to wallow in self-pity and lies and deceit and stay unwell? Because that's a question you have to answer, I have to answer, not just today, but every day going forward until He returns. Do you want to be made well And the only answer to that in the case of this invalid and in the case of the official son is by the words of Christ alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we are troubled by the lies we speak to ourselves, how we fail to believe the words of God. And so we ask for mercy as You have shown mercy to these individuals many years ago, show mercy to us that we will believe
the very words that come from your mouth and in believing them have true freedom. Freedom from our natural selves to be more like Christ. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.